Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read your word together. We pray, Father, that as you've promised, you'd lead us into the truth by your spirit so that we might know you better and your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the question I want to start with, oh, you've got a little outline there. Uh, that may be helpful to you. You may take some notes. That would be good. If you've got a Bible, you may want to open that too. Great to bring along a Bible to the EU public meeting since that's what we look at each week. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Just come and see us at the information table at afternoon tea, which is just sort of on the other side of that wall afterwards today, and we'd love to give you a Bible. But the question I want to start with today is this. Where to find God? Where are you going to find God? Um, I don't know if, uh, like me, you're pretty amazed at the scope and scale of the universe. Uh, here's a picture from the Hubble Space Telescope. Apparently, this is a picture of the birth of stars, apparently. It is also apparently a very long way away. It would take you a long time to drive there. <laughs> Don't come and take, talk to me later and say, oh, by the way, you can't actually drive through space. Like, yes, okay, thank you. <laughs> but when I sort of am struck by the wonder and scale of the universe, I, I, it does make me think, wow, you know, like it is a big place, I'm very small. And I get some sort of sense of the numinous, the transcendent, the divine from that. Maybe you're like me. Maybe it's not you know, astronomy, that's your gig. Uh, maybe it's more, you know, mountains and lakes and snow. And you sort of there go, yes, now I'm, I'm, I'm feeling some sort of sense of the great other, some sort of connection maybe. Or uh, talking to a mate the other day, he was talking about how he's down for a swim at Cronulla. It was sort of sunset. So that's what the sun was behind him, but he was there swimming with a mate, and he just said it was just one of those moments. He just, the waves were beautiful, just the, the sun, the water, the glint. And he said, I just, I did, I had a sense of just, there can't just be us, right? There has to be something greater. In fact, the Bible, the Christian Bible would say, of course you experience that, because God has made certain things, according to the Bible, apparent through his creation. Namely, he's made apparent his eternal nature, the fact that there is something more than just this creation, something behind it, some source that uh, has created it and maybe sustains it, some sense of the divine. But also, he says, what you also learn from creation is that this divine must be very powerful to have made all these things. So it's not surprising that you experience that from time to time. Now, of course, some people experience that and then say, yes, but if you want to really sort of nail down more details about what I'm sensing there, the place you need to look is not out there, but actually what you need to do is you need to look internally. Oh, that's not internally. We'll get to him in a minute. Yeah. Some people say actually what you need to do to then locate that divine is actually you need to turn inside. And through meditation or some sort of emptying of yourself that you actually then strengthen the connection that you feel. Or maybe even that when you look inside, as some have infamously said, when you look inside, actually what you realise is, oh my goodness, I am God. <laughs> you laugh, but that, that's, that's actually what people say happens as you turn internally and look and you realise actually your own divinity. Is that where we go to find God? Or do you, as yes, Finn on Glee has shown us, that actually you can see Jesus, I mean, the picture's not bright enough, but see Jesus is on his toasted cheese sandwich. There's a face of Jesus there. Has anyone actually seen the episode of Glee? 
A few people, yes. This is the, the grilled Jesus episode. And yes, there's scenes of him. This is, a, this is a, taken from a scene where he's actually praying to the grilled Jesus. Is that where we find God? Like in sort of random, weird sort of occurrences? In that? Like, where do we go to find God? Well, Christians, of course, say an outrageous thing. They say the place you go to find God is at the cross of Jesus. If you want to find the truth about this divine being who's out there, who I sometimes have a sense of, the place where you actually get the information at its clearest is the cross of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today. However, I have a bit of a problem because when you cross into Google Images, you come up with thousands of of these sort of pictures. It all looks very pretty. But of course, the cross of Jesus wasn't pretty. It wasn't picturesque. It wasn't a picture you go, oh, isn't that lovely? Let me put that on my computer wallpaper or I'll print it out and put it on my desk. Or No, the, the, the death of Jesus was gruesome. It was the horrific execution by a particularly torturous method of a person 2,000 years ago. If you were there, it didn't look pretty. It looked gory. If you were there, you have been struck by just the sheer amount of blood around this place. Some of it dry, some of it fresh. Because this was a place of execution. You would have had the stench of death in your nostrils and you would have had the cries of the dying in your ears. When Christians say, you know what... You know where you can really get a picture of what God's like? Go to the cross of Jesus. This is what I mean. Go here to this picture and you'll see what the one true God is really like. Now, at this point, I sort of have you going, okay, now that's weird. That's also maybe like you're going to need to explain that a little because that doesn't make a lot of sense. This looks like the darkest place you could, one of the darkest places you could go, and yet you're saying that's where I'm going to find the nature of the true God? How's that so? Well, I want to try and point out to you today four things that I think the Bible says about the cross of Jesus. Four things that we see if we have biblical eyes when we look at the cross of Jesus. So you can see the four things. I've got them there on your outline, sort of the four points. We'll just uh, work our way really quickly through them. The first thing at the cross of Jesus that we see, the first dot point on your outline is this. We see actually at the cross of Jesus the height of human rebellion. The height of human rebellion. If you've been around Christian circles for a, a while, like maybe you've been going to church or you grew up in a Christian family, you're, you're probably used to hearing about the cross of Jesus, because after all, the cross of Jesus is the very centre of Christian theology. It is at the very heart of Christian living, and it is the place where we understand God the clearest. So you've heard lots about it, but I wonder if you've often heard this point made, that actually at the cross of Jesus is the height of human rebellion. Let me uh, to try to explain that, tell you a story that Jesus told. This is one of the parables that Jesus told in his three years of sort of public ministry, recorded for us a couple of times actually in the New Testament, in the Gospel accounts, the biographies of his life, written by eyewitnesses or those who knew the eyewitnesses. And uh, this is a particular parable or story he told that explains why he is going to die. He knew he was going to die. He knew that was part of his vocation, part of his calling as the one who stands at the centre of God's purposes, the Christ, the Messiah. 
And so he told this story. He said there was an owner who planted a vineyard and he built a wall around it and he built a tower and he like all the things a vineyard needs. He provided everything that the vineyard needs. But then, because the owner was moving away, he rented it out to some tenants. Out, the owner moved away, the tenants were there. When it came time for harvest, he sent his servants back to the vineyard to the tenants to collect the fruit from the harvest. So he sent his servants along and the tenants, when the servants came, what did the tenants do? Well, what they did was they killed one of them, stoned another one, and they beat up a third. So those who were living went back to the owner. What did the owner do? Okay, well, the owner said, okay, well, I'll send more, more servants. So he sent more servants. What did they do this time? What did the tenants do? They did the same thing. So the owner goes, well, what am I going to do now? He says, I won't send my servants. I will send my son. Surely they will respect my son. So he sends his son. And what do the tenants do? The tenants see the son coming and they go, here is the heir. Here's the one who's going to inherit it all, including this vineyard. Let's kill the son because then the inheritance will be ours. So they grab the son they throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him. Jesus tells this story. It's a terrible story. Why does he tell the story? It's because he's saying, this is what is happening to me. Who's the owner of the vineyard? The one true living God. Who's the vineyard? God's people. The nation of Israel in the time of Jesus. Who are the tenants? Well, Jesus, <laughs> those who are listening knew. <laughs> the tenants are the religious leaders of the people of Israel. You read at the end of the story there in Matthew chapter 21, the religious leaders know exactly that actually Jesus is telling the story about them. And who's the servants? Well, it's all the people God has sent, the, the prophets over the years. Who's the son? Jesus himself. Jesus tells this story. Why? Why does he tell this story? Because he knows that as the, the, the promised Christ, the Messiah, the one who stands at the centre of God's plans, God's own people led by the religious leaders, are going to kill him. Do you just get the, the horrific irony of that? That God's own people are actually going to kill the one God has sent for them? That is what is happening. So you see, what happens when Jesus is indeed executed, there are God's people rejecting the one God has sent for them, rejecting God's Christ, God's Messiah, who should be their leader. And they've said, no way. We will kill him. You see, that's why I'm saying it's the height of human rebellion. This is sort of waving your fist at God like on a scale that's almost unimaginable. And yet it's not just the religious leaders of the nation of Israel at that time. You see, there's a passage there on your outline, uh, which I printed from later on in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, a bit earlier, actually, Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus, again, knowing that he's going to die, knowing this is going to happen, he explains what's going to happen. And you'll notice there, he says there in verse 18 from Matthew chapter 20 on your page, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, which is talking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. As you see here, it's not just a Jewish issue 
What's going on here is Jesus, as God's Christ, is going to be comprehensively rejected by both the Jews and the Gentiles. That's everybody else. A comprehensive, universal rejection of the one God has sent, of, of God's Son, Jesus. So that's why I'm saying when you look at the cross of Jesus, what you see is the height of human rebellion. But I want to say one, one thing more. I think what you also see when you look at the cross here is not just the height of their human rebellion, but actually you see the height of our human rebellion. Now you're probably going, well, hang on. If I was there, I wouldn't have done what they did. And I wasn't there, so it's got nothing to do with me. Well, I just want to make two just quick comments with this, and you might want to take issue with this later, and that's fine. You can talk to me or send me an email or whatever. I'd love to talk with you about it. But I just think we need to be careful about jumping too quickly to going, there's no way I would have done what they did. When you read through the Gospel accounts and you, you read about Jesus' public ministry and how really the religious leaders who had all the power, they were really confronted by Jesus and Jesus' claims and what Jesus had to say and it made them very uncomfortable. And when you read about the Gentiles who were um, sort of part of the plan at the end of the day to have Jesus executed, you realise they didn't really care much for Jesus. They didn't care much about him or even that justice be done. They were just trying to make life easy for themselves by getting him out of the picture. It's the same sort of just being confronted with Jesus and going, you know what, I've got the power to do something about this and I think I can get away with it. So I'll use it to remove Jesus, get him out of my face. And you know, if you'd been in that situation, either of those positions of power, and Jesus had been in your face in a way for day after day after day, for three years, and you had the power, and he was powerless, and you had the authority, and you had the opportunity, and no one was really going to hold you accountable, would you not have done it? Are you sure? I just point out that throughout human history, there's a lot of people who, given the power and the opportunity and the belief that they can get away with, they do all sorts of terrible things, don't they? So we just want to be too careful and not go, oh, there's no way I would ever do that, given those opportunities. But the second thing is this. Really what they were doing when they were killing Jesus is only an extreme, and it is extreme, extreme manifestation of that rejection of Jesus that actually we all participate in. Because, you know what, I'm confronted by the claims of Jesus day after day. We all are. And do you tend to go, well, thanks, Jesus. Basically, shut up. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, the same, it's, just, it's on the same track, isn't it? Maybe you don't have the extreme response that they had, but it's all of the same sort of pattern. A rejection of Jesus and his claims. So that's why I'm saying to you, I think what we see when we look at the death of Jesus on the cross is what we see is the height of human rebellion. But let's move on. What else do we see? Second dot point there. What we see is the weight of wrath. We see the weight of wrath. Let me uh, just give you another story from Jesus' life recording in the Gospels. This time it's the night before Jesus dies. So it's the, it's the night he's about to be arrested, the very night before he dies, and as I said to you before, he knew that he was going to die. And he's there in a place outside of Jerusalem called the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there with his closest friends, his disciples, and he's praying. He's praying. He knows he's going to die, but he's incredibly stressed. 
incredibly stressed. He's very anxious. Why? Well, he's about to die. That would make me anxious if I knew I was going to die and look like I was going to die tomorrow or very soon. However, that's not actually the reason. When you see, uh, it's recorded for us in the New Testament what he actually prays. And he prays, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And he prays this once, and he's still very stressed, so he prays it a second time. Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. And then he's still stressed, and he prays it a third time. This is his concern, that he's got to drink this cup, metaphorical cup. What's this cup he has to drink? Well, if you know your Bible, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that the cup he speaks of there is the cup of God's wrath against sin and wickedness. So I've got some references up there you might like to jot down and look up later. Uh, Isaiah 51, 17 to 23, or Jeremiah 25, 15 to 29. There's other references you could look up as well. But basically, what's happening in those passages, particularly, say, the Jeremiah one, you'll see God says, you know what, I, because I am just, I cannot let sin just keep going in the world. I need to actually condemn sin and bring those who perpetuate sin into justice, in, in, judge it. And so I'm going to pour out my wrath, the cup of my wrath on everybody, whether they're from my chosen Old Testament people or from any of the nations, for their sin. And what Jesus is worried about is because he says, when I die, that's what I've got to drink. I've got to drink the cup of God's universal wrath against all human sin, and I'm the one who has to drink it. If you want it in the shortest possible form, I can say it is, he knows he has to drink a cup that's full of Hell. That's what he has to drink. All of God's wrath against sin for your sin, for all of my sin, for all of human sin, that's in the cup and that's what he's, got. he's going to experience as he's hanging on the cross there, not just the physical terrible pain of death by crucifixion, he's experiencing hell. The righteous wrath of God poured out on all human sin, but focused into this one man, Jesus. Why did he need to drink that cup? Who'd want to drink that cup? Well, it's because this was his vocation, his calling as the Messiah, the, the Christ. If he's to be the saviour of the world, that means he needs to actually experience God's wrath for the world's sin. That's why he was stressed. So what you see at the cross is actually the, the weight of God's wrath against sin. But actually, that is also why Christians rejoice in the cross. We don't rejoice in what Jesus suffered. We rejoice in the fact that he suffered it for us. And that brings us to the third thing we notice. Third dot point there. Third dot point. The depth of love. I'm sorry, the passage, the Bible passage here from 1 John chapter 4 is sort of a bit out of place. It should come now, really, under the depth of love. What you see at the cross is not just the height of human rebellion and not just wrath against sin. What you see is the depth of God's astounding love that he would send his son to do this for us. So uh, let me just read to you a, a little bit there from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, 
Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. I just want to focus on verse 10 there for a moment. Notice that bit at the end. You might like to circle it or underline it. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. What's this atoning sacrifice? Well, if you've got a different English translation with you, maybe a, an ESV or a Holman or something else, you'll see that it's translated the word as propitiation, which is not a word that you probably use terribly often. Um, my guess is you probably never used that word before. Anyway, what does it mean to propitiate? It says when God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'll give you a very lame-o example. When you, when you fail to turn up to a date with your girlfriend and she's literally being stood up, standing at the bus stop, waiting for you to swing by and you just completely forgot and then she is righteously furious and angry and outraged and you go, right, what can I do about this righteous wrath that has been me? I know I will propitiate it. That is because what I'll do, I'll buy her some flowers and I will give her the flowers as a gift to turn away her wrath. That's what propitiation means. A gift given to turn away wrath. Right? Now the difference is you can do nothing of yourself to propitiate God's righteous wrath against you for your sin. There's nothing you can offer. Look God, I'm sorry, I've sinned. Here's my money. Here's my going to hear you. Here's my attendance at religious things. Or here's my just trying to be a nice person from now on. Now, you can't do anything to propitiate his righteous wrath against our sin. So what God does is he propitiates his own wrath by sending his son to bear the sins of the world and become the focal point for his righteous wrath. God propitiates himself in the person of his son, Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, verse 10 again, why does he do it? tells us, out of his great love. What you see at the cross is the depths of God's love for you, for all humanity, that he would do this in the person of his son so that you do not need to bear the weight of your sin and the righteous wrath of God against it. So you see here the great depths of his love. And I guess if you have any doubts ever that you think whether God really does love you, just turn your eyes back to the cross and let that reassure you, my goodness, he must love me, irrespective of how I'm feeling today, because look what he did for me. But finally, and we'll come to an end here, the final thing that I uh, think that you see here um, is wonderfully ironic. What you see at the cross is the source of life. In this terrible death of Jesus for us, we actually see the source of life. You notice this uh, there in the passage in 1 John, which you've got on your page there. See it from verse 9. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Because Jesus has died as our representative in our place, as our substitute, we now can have life. You're no longer under the wrath of God. What sort of life is he talking about? In fact, the New Testament calls it the life that really is life, as though the life we live here is tragically sometimes just a pale reflection of the real life that can be had in Christ. What's the life that really is life? What's the life that can be had through the death of Jesus? 
Well, it's life in a reconciled relationship with God. It's a life knowing God is not just a divine power out there, but God is your heavenly Father. And you've been adopted into his family as his child. It's life where you don't bear the weight of your sin and face God's wrath, where you have forgiveness and grace lavished on you. It's life where you know that even though my body will still die, that the life that he's promised, the real life, is actually eternal life, which will carry me through death, beyond the grave, into the new physical creation. That's the life that is won for us through the death of Jesus. It's like at the death of Jesus, at that terribly gruesome cross, the gates are open such that we can enter into real life, where we know God as he knows us. That's what's made possible through what Jesus has done. Well, so what? So what about this? We've been trying to talk about knowing God. We're trying to talk about, I'm trying to show you that actually when we look at the cross of Jesus, we start to know profound things about God. We actually see both his justice, that he does condemn sin. God hates the wickedness and evil that's in this world from which we're all victims, but tragically also agents. God is going to condemn that sin. He's, he's done something about that sin. You see his justice at the cross. But you also see his love. You see the justice and love of God there at the cross brought together. But also we learn stuff about ourselves. We learn stuff about the, just the, the height of our own rebellion as humans. And we learn something also about our need for life and yet the opportunity that awaits us if we would trust ourselves to him. How do you make a response to this sort of truth? Well, it's there in the 1 John passage, actually. Let me read to you verses 15 and 16, which is the top of the second page there. John writes, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. So what is the right sort of response to these amazing truths? It's to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And when I say acknowledge, I don't mean acknowledge in the way you go, wow, those EU t-shirts look cool, right? That's acknowledging a truth. You get my point? Right? No, this is acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. If you acknowledge that, you really are that person, Jesus. That has an impact on you, doesn't it? That, that, that must, if you really think he is that person, that must affect how you relate to him. That you actually say, you know what? You have the authority and I don't. You have the wisdom and I don't. So I'm going to follow you because I know you love me. And so, yes, it's acknowledging, but it's acknowledging that brings you into a knowledge of God and actually makes you rely on him, which is what John says there. We know and rely on the love God has for us. You know, uh, my kids, I have five children, somehow, um, and uh, they know that I love them, even in my own faltering way. They know that I'm for them. They know that they are so important to me, but they know that not because I have written a book about it and given it to them. They know it not because I lectured them about it over the dinner table. Now, let me tell you how much I love you. <laughs> they know it because they experience it. And what's more, they rely on that. In our interactions, they rely on that. That is what a relationship with God looks like. 
You know it. So I just want to finish by saying to you, whoever you are, and I haven't had the opportunity to get to know all of you yet, whether you call yourself a Christian or whether you're still just checking it all out, do you know and rely on the love that God has for you? And maybe you need to recommit yourself to relying on that love rather than trying to justify yourself before God. And maybe you need to acknowledge that Jesus is this person, the Son of God, even over your own life. And if you haven't checked this out, then may I encourage you to do it? Because we think that in Jesus, see him here at the cross, you will find the source of real life. Thanks very much for listening. Andy with a word of prayer. No, Megan is going to close. Okay. Um, if you'd like to pray with me, I'll close quickly. Great Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son, propitiating for our rejection of you. We thank you for the greatness of your love, and we pray that you might help us uh, to respond in the right way, to acknowledge uh, and to rely on your love. Pray that you might help us to do that together and to uh, shine this truth to our campus as well. Amen.